Good morning. Welcome to Come and Reason Bible Study Class. We're broadcasting live from College Dale, Tennessee this morning. Uh, my name is Lori Atkins. I'm substituting for Dr. Tim Jennings, who is right now out in California. He is speaking or participating in a multi-speaker event at Garden Grove Seventh-day Adventist Church just outside of Los Angeles. It's called the Character of God Conference, and they are presenting, multiple presenters are presenting views of a non-violent atonement. Each one of the presentations are being live-streamed. The ones that have already taken place, they have recorded and archived. All right, let's open class today with prayer. Father, we are thankful, grateful for this day, what it represents and for you and your character and the lengths and depths that you have gone to to communicate that to us and to give us evidence so that we can truly know you and be one back to trust in you. Um, there's so many people to pray for. We've got people in California that are impacted by fires. We've got people in Puerto Rico and Florida and Houston still impacted by hurricanes. Mexico and the earthquakes, I mean, there's a lot of people hurting on, on this earth, and we are, we are inviting and asking you to, to open doors for this message, to use us in any way that we can to hasten the coming uh, of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So today we're studying Lesson 4 in our quarterly, fourth, fourth quarter title for this week, justification by faith. So and to be perfectly honest, I have found this quarterly to be a bit challenging so far. And I found this week's lesson to be a bit challenging. Not sure if anybody else has some similar struggles. But one of the reasons that it's a struggle and I feel so strongly about it might be illustrated by a letter that we received recently, the ministry received recently. It says, Dear Dr. Jennings, just finished reading The God-Shaped Heart and have such a sense of relief on the one hand and a sense of being cheated by our church for 77 years not knowing the real character of God. The importance was always placed on a checklist instead of on his character. What a relief to know the truth. I'm sharing information about the book with others. I relate to so much of this, all of it, the relief, the gratitude, the sense of being cheated, and the sadness for so many missed opportunities. There is something wrong in Christianity. God's law of love, his design product protocols on which reality is built to operate, have been replaced with a fallen human law construct. And God has been falsely presented as a punishing dictator and one who needs to be appeased, at the worst, even with the blood of his own son, in order to survive his wrath. This idea, above all others, is at the root of Christianity's impotence, its inability to connect to the power of God for real healing and transformation of the heart. That is from this book called The God-Shaped Heart. From chapter 2, which is appropriately entitled, The Infection. And if you had any doubt about if or how deep this infection runs in Christianity, and even in our own denomination, this lesson in this quarterly should provide some evidence. 
And if you think this idea is something new, or that the church didn't used to teach how this false law construct and penal substitution theology hardens hearts and prevents real heart transformation from taking place, having the form of godliness but denying the power. One of the founders of our church describes it this way, Today, a large part of those who compose our congregations are dead in trespasses and sin. They come and go like the door upon its hinges. For years, they have complacently listened to the most solemn, soul-stirring truths, but they have not put them in practice. Therefore, they are less and less sensible to the preciousness of truth. The stirring testimonies of reproof and warning do not arouse them to repentance. The sweetest melodies that come from God through human lips. Justification by faith. So get your mind around that. She just said justification by faith is the sweetest of melody that comes from God through human lips. And the righteousness of Christ do not call forth from them a response of love and gratitude. Though the heavenly merchantman displays before them the richest jewels of faith and love, though he invites them to buy of him gold tried in the fire and white raiment, that they may be clothed, and eye salve that they may see, they steal their hearts against them and fail to exchange their lukewarmness for love and zeal. While making a profession, they deny the power of godliness. If they continue in this state, God will reject them. They are unfitting themselves to be members of his family. What was the reference on that? That is CCH, page 67. So our memory text this week is a familiar one. It comes from Romans 3.28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And as is my custom, let's start with some definitions. What does it mean to be justified? Brought back to God. I have one that says set right. It's equating it to being on a printed page so that the letters at the right or the left edge form a straight line. But the meaning is the same. I got some other definitions. One is having a good or legitimate reason for something. You're justified. Which is interesting because some folks teach that we are declared righteous by God, even though we're not, which would not be a good or legitimate reason for something. Another definition is to show that something is reasonable or right or true which is also in contrast to having just been declared, even though we're not. Um, The religious definition is to be declared or made righteous in the sight of God. In fact, this is from a website called BibleStudyTools.com. It says justification is the declaring of a person to be just or righteous. It is a legal term signifying acquittal. Accordingly, it is not surprising that salvation is often viewed in legal terms. Not surprising. Justification points to the acquittal of one who is tried before God. 
And in scripture, it is not too much to say that righteousness is basically a legal term. The law that mattered was, of course, the law of God, so that righteousness signified conformity to the law of God. Of course, this is true, but only if you correctly understand God's law. So we'll talk more about possible meanings of justify in Tuesday's lesson. Okay, what about the reference to the law in our memory text? That we are justified without the deeds of the law. What law do we think is being referenced in the memory text? I actually think that this text is talking about the codified moral law. The deeds, the MRI-ish diagnostic instrument designed to reveal or highlight or pinpoint our disease but has no power to heal or save. So why was this justification by faith concept so revolutionary, both in Christ's day and in Martin Luther's Reformation? What made it so? What was going on in both environments? The concept of righteousness had so been so perverted. Yes. And forgotten. So the concept of law. Right. And what were the means for being justified or made right in Christ's day and in Martin Luther's day? What else had been corrupted? The rich young ruler said, I have kept all these rules since I was a child. Yes. It was all about rule keeping. And even further than that, it was about extortion. You know what I mean? So, I mean, even in the temple uh, practices in Christ's day, he was turning over tables for a reason. There was much corruption and people were having to pay and, again, appease and indulge in order to feel like they had been forgiven to, or in order to feel like they were meeting the requirements of the law. Same in Martin Luther's day, the church had become so corrupt um, that the idea that we could be justified simply by faith alone, by trust in God, was revolutionary. So these paragraphs in Saturday's lesson kind of set the tone for this week's lesson, kind of give you an idea of where we're headed. The phrase, justification by faith itself, is a figure based on law. The transgressor of the law comes before a judge and is condemned to death for his transgressions. But a substitute appears and takes the transgressor's crimes upon himself, thus clearing the criminal. By accepting the substitute, the criminal now stands before the judge, not only cleared of his guilt, but also regarded as never having committed the crimes for which he was first brought into court. And that's because the substitute, who has a perfect record, offers the pardoned criminal his own perfect law-keeping. In the plan of salvation, each of us is the criminal. The substitute, Jesus, has a perfect record, and he stands in the court in our stead. His righteousness accepted in place of our unrighteousness. Hence, we are justified before God, not because of our works, but because of Jesus, whose righteousness becomes ours when we accept it by faith. Talk about good news. In fact, the news can't get any better than that. Any thoughts? 
It's even better news that I can be an overcomer. There's even better news. And be restored the original design. Yes. And truly healed. And that God is not the person he's been made out to be. Correct. What kind of a God does that picture present? Satanic. Doctrine of devils. Yeah. And if you replace this legal courtroom with a doctor's office and go through the same scenario that we've done in this class where you, you are sick, you have an illness, you have a disease, and your medical records reflect that, and the doctor says, I'll pull out those pages, look at your brother, he's not sick at all, he has a perfect medical record, let's just replace your pages with his pages, you're good to go. Is that good news? Do you walk out of there thinking, talk about good news, it can't get any better than this? that's horrific and again it's impotent we have a, a entire religion designed and crafted to serve an omnipotent God and it is impotent with no power for victory no power for overcoming no true healing and transformation but a legal acquittal. It's an infection. All right, so let's dig into Sunday's lesson. Comment on that. Yes, please. In the Adventist World Review about a month ago, there's an article in there by this man and uh, husband and wife team. Uh-huh. I think they were in Germany. They've been in evangelism or broadcast or something. Right. She would ask him questions and he would answer them. And one thing that was in there that now that Jesus paid the legal penalty, and that word was right in there, the legal part. And so now we can go directly to God and we're no longer God's enemies. And, And I thought... If that's what they think, why would the, the, the review staff catch up such things and not even print it unless they just believe the same thing or it doesn't matter one way or the other to them? I don't think there's much diversity of thought where that's concerned. And I mean, I, you can't read the quarterly and think that there is. I, it's an acceptable methodology model it's called the forensics model well every time a new quarterly comes out I always try to read in the front and see who the principal contributor is and I don't know if anybody has looked at this one or not they don't have one I th- yeah I think Tim did it's a it's a compilation Sunday school staff right and interesting to that at the annual council, when Wilson was talking at the Sabbath service last week, he said the Sabbath school is so important, and I've now taken that under my wing. So you can see where that's headed. In the same context, that article you're talking about the review, when I read that, the word legal struck me too, and I thought, 
would anybody, would they accept another article written on our theme? Right. But if not, a letter to the editor, would they accept that saying something about that article? I actually considered, you know, writing and seeing if they would print a letter written in contrary to that, that article. That bothered me. Well, and we're going to talk about, there is no question based on language translations, the influence of Latin. There's no question why there are misunderstandings and a tilt toward legal language. I mean, you can't read Romans and not understand why somebody might misinterpret our problem as legal versus something else. We're going to talk about that. Wendell. When I was in high school, there was a physician who treated cancer as his specialty, a form of cancer as his specialty. And it was later found that he was doing just what you described. Oh, wow. He was essentially writing in the record things that were not correct as far as it being cured. And his outcomes were? Lousy. <laughs> and eventually he was disbarred wow. from practicing medicine. Um, and rightly so. And rightly so. And you think, wow, and in in the real world of care for sick people, that is not allowed, and yet in the religious world, that is an accepted encouraged. Yes. And uh, dissension is squashed. But it's I, I think that's a powerful insight into the relevance of the integrative evidence-based approach that we use in this class. Because if they were using scripture blended with science, blended with reality, how things work in reality, there's no way that this, this model, this methodology, you can't flesh it out and make it work. Because that's not how things work in reality. And like you said, in a medical example, it would never be accepted. You lose your license. Yes, Rachel. So I'd like to ask a follow-up question of the class based on Wendell's uh, story here. So the people who were the patients, at first they did not know that they were not getting better because the record said they were, but eventually they found out they weren't. So let's move back to the spiritual realm and ask, do you know whether or not you have been healed from sin. At first you may not. Because at first it's by faith, right? Right. When at first, like the pneumonia patient who starts on antibiotics, it may get uglier than it was before. You know what I mean? You may cough the symptoms. We're talking about sin and sin and the sinful nature. So do we know when we're healed? You You can be told by members of authority that you have been healed. I think when your feeling of fear changes to the feeling of faith, trusting God, because I I read the last section on the last page, Selected Messages, Mm -hmm. it does go into the point where she she talks about God's law is can't ever be changed, it's eternal, and that's the law of, you know, nature, Mm -hmm. And um, so it does say that, you know, the faith, the trust, does really, it's kind of like a gift. From oh, God. for sure. So, you know, if that takes the place of the fear, 
the fear and the and the selfishness is replaced by by love and faith, then yes. it really then you are cured, basically, not completely. Or you're at least on the path. You've turned from the path to death to the path to life. You are in the healing process, and I think the answer to that, Rachel, is yes. Only from my personal experience. This is what I want to hear. When I know my nature so well that my reaction to a certain situation guaranteed is going to be one maybe not healthy or not optimal. And over time, I see that reaction changing. I don't respond with, let's say, sarcasm. (laughs) Not that that would ever happen. But, you know, or that my mouth is not the first thing that, that functions or something that used to take up my time and my attention no longer interests me or might even repulse me. Those are real, actual changes that I know I did not do in and of myself. I have been praying. I have been asking. I have been submitting. You know what I mean? And asking for a change of heart and a change of character. And for me, it's not, there's no overnight magic. It is over time. It is gradual. And if you look back, it is awe-inspiring yes exactly that's that's my experience i don't know if anyone else has has had that experience actually experienced it yes which also i think along with this you have a feeling of contentment yes and peace right where in the past you're always questioning yourself always am i right with god is there something i need to confess yes you know if i was to die today would i be saved and all of a sudden, you have this feeling of, you know what? I know there's still sin in my life. I know I'm not perfect, but God sees me yes. because he loves me that way, and I love him. And I feel that feeling of peace and contentment. Yes. And relief. The letter that the, the lady wrote to the ministry, she feels so relieved. It's freeing. It's liberating. Um, also, I mean, there was uh, the talk that Tim and another speaker gave last night. There are many, many metaphors for salvation, Healing is healing is mentioned, but a lot of them are legal. Some of them are banking or financial, where you're talking about accounting and settling an account. There are a bunch of different metaphors, but the healing model is not metaphor. It is the reality to which all of the other metaphors point. And when you can actually see physical, mental, spiritual transformation in your own life or in people that, that you know that are the Holy Spirit is working with, that's not metaphor. That's real. And that is, we're going to talk about this. The only way the record books get changed in heaven is not with magic ink or an eraser. It's when our actual characters change here on earth What's happening is just being recorded up there. So when we are set right, when we are justified, when we are healed and transformed, the records reflect that because that's what happened. Well, you know, but one of the hardest things for me to accept is people that have been Christians all their life, say Adventists all their life, and they're dying. And they're saying, I just have a fear that there's something not right between me and God. I forgot to confess. Something. Yeah. When Don's father was dying, that was, and I never knew a more righteous man than him. You know, right now my father's in the hospital. He's dying of cancer. I was just there this week talking with him. What was his fear? Oh, Tina, I hope I'm saved. I said, Daddy, how can you say that? I mean, do you not have peace in your heart that things are right between you and God? Oh, but there's things I know I've done in my life. Well, sure, we all have. 
You know, but the, how sad that they lived their whole life. It's so sad. That they thought they've lived, they're living for God. Yes. They're dying and now it's like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be there. You have to realize that that's not your job to, to save yourself. That's the Holy Spirit's job. So it's like the whole lesson is talking about the law. So if you're like, even if you follow the law, you might not be saved. Right. The Holy Spirit is the one that's doing the job. So you need to relinquish to the Holy Spirit and let him do it. Oh, I agree with that. But I also think the Lord wants you to have peace in knowing that you're saved. I, yeah. I hate to think that I was dying. Right. And I turned it over to the Holy Spirit, but then I'm still saying, oh, but I sure hope I'm well, going to be there. Well, then you really turn it over to the Holy Spirit. Well, 100%. I still have that. But I so relate to that. And the only thing I can, I mean, I think about how this basically about face or paradigm shift, how difficult or how much time and effort is taken for me with 40, 50 years of entrenched ideas, thought patterns, teachings and I double that I mean we start we brought my mom here to class this letter came from somebody who felt they'd been cheated for 77 years my mom came to class for the first time when she was 77 she came here for 10 years all of it did not make it through (laughs) (laughs) to my mom's deeply I mean those neuro pathways are steep and not regenerating as fast or at all. Um, so I have to think that it's just twice as hard to unlearn what has been so deeply entrenched for so many years. And it is, it's sad. I feel you. Yes. In response to Tina's comment, your father is not alone in his questioning. You know, look at, look at Christ himself in the garden. Okay, he... He knew better than any human that's ever walked the planet that he was in conformity with quote, God's quote law, the design law, because he was the designer himself. And yet, in his point of weakness, Satan tempted him and tempted him. It was much, much greater temptation to walk away from the whole process than it was to turn stones into bread when he was hungry in the, in the wilderness uh, three and a half years earlier. So, so this this idea that, that when we're when we're on our quote deathbed and, and looking back over the trajectory of our life and we start thinking about things that we've done uh, or shouldn't have done, uh, I, I think that uh, you know, the, the questioning and the ruminating is um, uh, virtually unavoidable. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's a um, there's a problem with one's salvation at that point, but it's it's the nature it's the nature of it's the nature of the tempter. He's gonna he's gonna catch us at our weak point and tempt us to to doubt, to stumble and fall and, and change trajectory. I think that point is, is really important. It's the nature of the tempter. Yeah. Yes. Who is the accuser of the brother? It's not Christ. Right. Never has been. Yeah. Sunday's lesson, and I think this points to. Like I said, I'm, thank you for bringing up the the part in the introduction that shows that this quarterly was kind of a compilation from a bunch of different Sabbath school leaders because you kind of see there's some about faces from day to day or from week to week. Well, comment on that. Yes. I know someone who's worked on these quarterly. She's now retired, but she says that at one time, I, can't, I don't know which quarterly it was, but the 
the Sabbath school committee changed the theology of the author, the lesson author, what he had said in his published books. And they wrote to the author and said, do you want to, us to take your name off because we've changed your theology to the opposite of what you wrote? And he said, no, he'd keep his name on there. So. <laughs> I'm impressed that they acknowledged that they changed the theology to the opposite. Well, so Sunday's lesson, titled The Deeds of the Law, takes a bit of an about face, and I actually think that there's some very accurate, well-stated analysis of the moral, the codified moral laws, functional role, what it was designed to do. Um, it says to be under law means to be under its jurisdiction, which we've talked about some in this class. What is the jurisdiction of God's law? The design. It's the design. And God's law is the law of? Love. Love. And life. So what is the, the jurisdiction? What is the right thing to do? What is justice under the law of love? Ministration for others. Love our neighbors as ourselves. Yes. And it's healing. It's restoration for people that are outside the law of love. So the law, however, reveals a person's shortcomings and guilt before God. The law cannot remove that guilt. What it can do is lead the sinner to seek a remedy for it. Amen. The moral law can't save us any more than the system of Judaism could save the Jews. To save a sinner is not the moral law's function. Its function is to reveal God's character and to show people wherein they fall short of reflecting that character. It is a diagnostic instrument. This is from the quarterly. <laughs> the law can no more save us than the symptoms of a disease can cure the disease. The symptoms don't cure. They point out the need for the cure. That's how the moral law functions. I have a big yes in my notes. So, yay Sunday. Monday's lesson. The righteousness of God. And at first appearance, we take a bit of a sharp turn back toward the penal model. But I do want to dig into this. Uh, there's a quote in the middle of the page on Monday's lesson from Selected Messages. Not sure if anybody else read it, if it gave them a moment's pause. It says, Righteousness is obedience to the law. The law demands righteousness. And this the sinner owes to the law, but he is incapable of rendering it. That should remind you of another quote. The only way in which he can attain to righteousness is through faith. By faith, he can bring to God the merits of Christ, and the Lord places the obedience of his son to the sinner's account. Christ's righteousness is accepted in place of man's failure, and God receives, pardons, justifies the repentant, believing soul, treats them as though he were righteous, and loves him as he loves his son. Then the lesson asks, how can you learn to accept this wonderful truth for yourself? It depends upon the paradigm that you have when you read that. Doesn't it? What you hear and see. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, it kind of threw me for a loop. Because mm -hmm. I'm thinking, wait a second, that sounded like straight up penal substitution. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, wow, that does not fit 
with lots of other stuff I read from the same author. So, y'all know well that this ministry has never desired to tell people what to think, but has rather wanted to teach people to think and to teach them how to discern and think for themselves. So, you may also remember Dr. Jennings has walked us step by step through his process of unpacking some of these tougher quotes or scriptures um, in class. And apparently, I need a couple more lessons because I was studying this lesson and preparing to teach. And when I read this quote, I sent Tim an email and the subject line simply said, Help! with three exclamation points. And I asked him for some advice on how to walk through this quote. Using the natural law, healing remedy model instead of the penal model, I found this methodology so helpful, I thought maybe it would be useful to you too. So I wanted to share with you what he shared with me. He said, the first thing I do when confronted with such a quote is to go to the source and read it in context, which makes perfect sense. So here is the quote from the quarterly, but expanded to read it in context. And it says, without the grace of Christ, the sinner is in a hopeless condition. Nothing can be done for him, but through divine grace, supernatural power is imparted to the man and works in mind and heart and character. That doesn't sound, there's no legal, there's no books mentioned there. It is through the impartation of the grace of Christ that sin is discerned in its hateful nature and finally driven from where? From the soul temple. It is through grace that we are brought into fellowship with Christ to be associated with him in the work of salvation. Faith is the condition upon which God has seen fit to promise pardon to sinners. Not that there is any virtue in faith whereby salvation is merited, but because faith can lay hold of the merits of Christ, the remedy provided for sin. Faith can present Christ's perfect obedience instead of the sinner's transgression and defection. When the sinner believes that Christ is his personal savior, then according to his unfailing promises, God pardons his sin and justifies him freely. The repentant soul realizes that his justification comes because Christ, as his substitute and surety, has died for him, is his atonement and righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Righteousness is obedience of the law. The law demands righteousness, and this the sinner owes to the law, but he is incapable of rendering it. The only way in which he can attain to righteousness is through faith. By faith he can bring to God the merits of Christ, and the Lord keeps places the obedience of his son to the sinner's account. Keep some of these key terms in mind, because we're going to unpack them in a sec. Christ's righteousness is accepted in place of man's failure, and God receives, pardons, justifies the repentant, believing soul, treats him as though he were righteous, and loves him as he loves his son. This is how faith is accounted righteousness, and the pardoned soul goes on from grace to grace, from light to a greater light. 
He can say with rejoicing, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of, of regeneration and renewing of his Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, to me, it already sounds better when read in context. But so several points. First, God communicates to people where they are. Just as you would speak and communicate differently to your two-year-old child than you would to your teenage child, right? So you have an understanding of their cognitive abilities, their maturity, what they're capable of handling. Um, That impacts how and, and what we communicate, just as does when dealing with spiritual matters. There is one truth, but there are many ways to express it. And people at different moral levels are spoken to differently. Mrs. White here is speaking to people who are still stuck in false law thinking, yet she is trying to lead them out of it. Jesus used similar techniques in many of his parables, and it all becomes clear when we start to decode some of those key words. So what are the merits of Christ? And doesn't that one make you cringe a little bit if you've ever been associated with with some other faiths that use that application maybe in a daily ritual? Um, What are the merits of Christ? What did he achieve for us? If he used a different word there. Yeah, it's hard. If he used character traits. Yes! They are the traits of character. The perfect character he developed. In his humanity, and she said in the context of that quote, it is the remedy for sin. And this is the character he has promised to reproduce in us. And did you notice early in the quote where sin is being driven from? Not from record books, from the soul temple. But how? By the application of the merits of Christ which means by applying his character that he's promised to reproduce in us, our character becomes changed, which then drives sin out of the soul temple and is reflected in the record book. All right, you get it. So what is being recorded? What is being recorded in the heavenly records? All all of our sinful deeds? No, she says, remember your character is being daguerreotyped. I had to look up. Photographed. Photographed. Your character is being photographed, an actual representation by the great master artist in the record books of heaven, as minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist. What do the books of heaven say in your case? Are you conforming your character to the pattern, Jesus Christ? Are you washing your robes of character and making them white in the blood of the Lamb? Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Can I pause there? Yes. So, based on that, that discussion, the record books are not becoming whiter and whiter. They're becoming more complete and more complete. Yes in detail and fleshing out of who you really are. Yes. Well, it would be like if you had a file and then you made corrections to the file. 
or revisions, corrections in a medical record. You your record gets more and more complete of health. Yes. Documenting further and farther. You know, Progress. On a daily basis, we're documenting things getting better or worse. You know, we do have failures, but anyway. Um, but the record is getting more and more complete of the successes or failures of the individual. It's an accurate record. It's not an erasure. That's correct. Someone didn't slip and, and put their foot on the pedal. <laughs> and it is a vindication of the doctor and his treatment plan. And do we think this will stop? Do we think we are told that our character development will continue through all eternity? I can't help but think that that record is going to continue to be as accurate as it always has been. I don't think there's a need to stop recording. Just my opinion. Yes. I'm agreeing with everything that is being said, but one verse that keeps popping in my head, and it's with the word righteousness. Mm -hmm. The Bible says that all of our righteousness are filled with rags. But what do we keep striving for to? If we say to do a good deed or something Christ-like, and then we, I or me, I hear the verse, all my righteousness are filled with rags. What am I striving for? Everything that I do is looked at as filled with rags. Oh, yes. Where's the source? The, the source of your righteousness is not talking about your righteous deeds are bad. Yeah. It's talking about everything that I come out of myself is as filthy rags. But Christ's righteousness in me, as I live out my life, is a different animal. Yes. Okay? And so if it's me, if you're looking at what I have, whatever... Nothing to the cross I bring, or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, etc. Um, you know, it's Christ in you, the, right. hope of, the hope of glory. Hope of glory. To me, that I think that's what Paul is addressing in is it Romans seven, where he says, "What I want to do, I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do is what I end up doing." And he. He was on the path to healing. He had been won back to trust. He had been justified, but it still didn't mean that every single thing he did was exactly in line with what he wanted to do. Yes, Rachel. So that's what Christian humility is. Yeah. It's not feeling that I'm bad. Mm -hmm. It's recognizing that everything good that I ever do is a gift from Jesus. Right. And not. Okay. And every talent that I have, everything I've ever accomplished is a gift from Jesus. It's not me. Right. Right. Yes, Teresa. I think First Corinthians 13 kind of presents that too. It doesn't matter if we would give our life for our neighbor. We don't have love. We don't have Christ. Yeah. It's nothing. It's nothing. So you can do all you can, but if you don't have Christ in your heart and you don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. Going back to this, um, you know, everything I do, my righteousness is filthy riots. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of self less. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. It's a good one. He must increase, but I must decrease. Yes. All right, so we kind of worked through that. Changing our characters, perfect character. So what about all the, the talk about pardon? 
It says, the, we realize we have the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the divine similitude, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. So, we see that the remission of sins that are past is through the forbearance of God, not through some legal action. Thus, the pardon mentioned in the original quote is not a legal court action, but the reality that God doesn't hold our sins against us and never has. But our minds have feared this. Remember, what did Adam and Eve do? Immediately after falling, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Thus, we needed to be reassured that God is not holding it against us. And therefore, we are told that God pardons us, but only if we are truly healed. Because if we refuse to be healed, he's not going to say, the laws upon which I have constructed life to operate are suspended, and you and your fear and selfishness are going to be healthy anyway. He can't do that. But he still pardons us. Yes. We are pardoned. Okay? The forgiveness is always flowing. God is always loving, is always pardoned. It doesn't mean I would be well. Right. It doesn't mean I actually experience it. Right. Yes. Well said. Okay. So, anyway, that was awesome. The transformation of that quote for me. So, I'm going to use that in practice. Hopefully, that helped you. Let's look at Tuesday's lesson. Can I say a little story? Please. When I was in medical school, I had grown up um, being threatened with a little old lady with three initials. And all my life, <laughs> yeah. you know, I had been working under this burden of, I thought she was terrible. Yeah. And at that time in history, several people came out very critical of her. And I went to all their meetings <laughs> and they were acid. Yeah. And I recoiled a little bit from the acid. And so in trying to save money, because if I bought all her books, it would cost lots of money and I didn't have a lot of money. I bought the very first CD that came out with her writing. Right. And every time a passage was pro pro provided in the Sabbath school quarterly, I went back and read the entire article from which it was taken. And I became a lover yeah. of a strange little lady that I had hated all my life. And I think there's a, something to be said for reading the entire text. I'm right there with you. Quote. There are many wonderful quotes that we quote, even in this, in yeah. this class. And I would hesitate to take those wonderful quotes and continue to read them in their isolation. Yes. I totally agree. You know, the woman is not what she was made out to be. No. If I could just add a little something. Yes. I always tell my college classes this. If you look at, especially volumes two and three of the testimonies, the individual testimonies, there's a specific literary pattern. The beginning is the context of the person. Who is the person? What is the situation? Then the middle part, which is always the shortest, is the advice. The last part, which is always the longest part, is the gospel. And our books, like Messages to Young People, Child Guidance, Adventist Home, have taken the advice out and left out the situation and the gospel. And we have destroyed yes. 
our young people, a generation. And, and I, I tell them, don't buy those books. The compilations are a difficult thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, if you already fully understand the gospel, maybe you could get some well, help. Well, someone. But do we ever fully understand the gospel? Right. Someone quoted me that the testimonies to the church are just that. They are to the church, those who are already saved by grace and growing in grace, then you're allowed to read those mm. awful little red books. Yeah. You know? Because they're not awful. Once you understand that you're saved by grace and by God alone, and God is not meant, is not the guy that everyone's made it out to be. And these are messages of encouragement and instruction and correction. Yes. Yeah. Wayward children who are his children. Yes. Okay? Do not read that if you're not converted. Just like if we would give advice to our kids, it would be stronger than somebody would give to just a... Right. That's correct. Right. Yeah. Very well said. And by the way, the best book on Ellen White I've ever read is Judd Blake's recent book on Ellen White, um, which answers everything I think you'll ever find on the internet. The footnotes for each chapter in the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, a tri- he did a tremendous job for our church, and I think if that book had been come out years ago, it would have saved a whole generation. So, just a one paragraph, maybe in Tuesday's lesson, that made me sad. Um, it says, "It says before this justification, a person is unrighteous and thus unacceptable to God. After justification, he or she is regarded as righteous, whether it's true or not." And thus acceptable to God. Do you have any thoughts about that? Romans 5 8. <laughs> While we were yet sinners, Luke 15 20. But when we, he was yet a great way off, his father saw him yes. and had compassion and ran <laughs> toward him and fell on his neck. So you saw this passage, I'm wondering. Yeah. Well, what did God do in the Garden of Eden? After Adam and Eve sinned, he, he came and called to them. He wanted to still spend time with them. Where does the th- thought that we are, because we were born with a fallen nature through no fault of our own, that we are unacceptable to God? Is a sick patient unacceptable to the physician? Will he not see him? What's unacceptable? Is our condition unacceptable? Yes. It's out of harmony with his design and how he, he built us to operate. He wants to fix that. All right. Wednesday's lesson. Really quick. He talks about, in Romans 3.25, the fancy word propitiation. This is another squirmer. What's your first reflex reaction when you hear the word propitiation? It is now. (laughs) I've now come to believe that the Bible does not teach penal substitution, but is there any doubt why and how there is so much confusion with all the legal language and terminology used, particularly in Romans, most of Paul's writings? So when you read your Bible, what language are you reading it in? Most of us are reading it in English. And if you're reading the Bible in English then there is a translation bias toward lingual language, guaranteed. 
When Constantine converted, Christianity accepted a change in the way it viewed God's law, away from the construction protocols for life, and accepted that the idea that God's law functions just like the laws did in imperial Rome. Thus, Christianity began seeing God as a legal dictator, and all Bible translations have come after the conversion of Constantine, yes. Every so often you come across a version that that word is not used. Yeah. The New Living Translation, for God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. Nice. All the translations happened after Constantine, which means imposed law was woven through. It was unavoidable. So, okay. Y'all have to read the notes because there's a lot in here. So let me read it from the remedy. Here's how it reads in Dr. Jennings' paraphrase, the remedy, starting in chapter 3, verse 21. But now God has revealed a healthy state of being, a character that is right and perfect in every way, that did not come from the written code, but is exactly what the scriptures and the Ten Commandments were pointing your minds toward. This perfect state of being comes from Christ and is created within us by God when we trust him. Our trust in him is established by the evidence given through Jesus Christ of his supreme trustworthiness. There is no difference amongst any ethnic group, for all humanity is infected with the same disease of distrust, fear, and selfishness and are deformed in character and fall far short of God's glorious ideal for mankind. Yet all who are willing are healed freely by God's gracious remedy that has been provided by Jesus Christ. God presented Jesus as the way and means of restoration. Now through trust established by the evidence of God's character revealed when Christ died, we may partake of the remedy procured by Christ. God did this to demonstrate he is right and good because in his forbearance he suspended for a time the ultimate consequences of being out of harmony with how he designed life to exist and has falsely accused of being unfair. So he did it to demonstrate how right and good he is at the present time so he would be seen as being right when he heals those who trust in Jesus. Can you hear how different that sounds? between translations. Well, there's lots more. Let me read. There was a pink box about God's character on uh, Wednesday's lesson. We'll close with that. Satan likely expected God to destroy the world after it sinned. Instead, God sent Jesus to save it. What does that tell us about the character of God? And how should our knowledge of his character impact how we live? Truth. All right, let's close with prayer. Father God, um, we are in awe, I think. I'm in awe and wonder, and I'm so grateful for just the revelation of your character and the knowledge um, that is available because you you desire us to see you for who you really are. Um, let us do that. Like I said, open our hearts and minds, open doors for this message. We want to go home, and so please use us in whatever way we can uh, to hasten 
that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.